Tomorrow is August the 12th. And August the 12th in 2017, some things happened in our city that were absolutely horrific. Not only that, as I was down there for part of the day, and observing what I saw seemed absolutely surreal to me. Yesterday at the pavilion at four o'clock, hundreds of people met to have what was called a sing-out, where people from organizations all over the city and loads of churches came to kind of sing and show a sign of unity in the face of everything that had happened in our community in 2017. I know for some of us, it feels as though 2017 is history. But I can guarantee you for the African-American community and the Jewish community, it is not history. It has become a new normal. We have to understand that. I don't know what it's like, and I say this every time I talk about racism as we have, as a church, have partnered with other communities and ethnic groups around our city, specifically the African-American community. I have no clue what it's like to see my children go out the front door and be deeply concerned if they'll ever return. I don't have that concern. I've also been involved loosely with some government education here in Charlottesville, where I've dealt some, to some degree with some government executives who come down to Charlottesville to study. And what absolutely stunned me is when I was teaching one of the courses, what shocked me was when I asked the African-Americans who had come down from D.C. to Charlottesville what was in their hearts. You know what they all told me? They hit Route 66 and they make sure they have a full tank of gas because they're very scared with the distance between D.C. and Charlottesville. I've never experienced that. Never. So what I want to say is, as a church... We unequivocally stand against racism in every form and fashion. If you are not a follower of Jesus, this does not apply to you, but if you are a follower of Jesus, we wholeheartedly commit to the biblical reality that every single person is created in the image of God. Every single person. And we also have the biblical mandate that we take each person as an individual. Because Jesus does. It's so important to understand this. And so what I'm going to ask that we would do, I'm going to ask, and I say this with full understanding of what this means, but I'm going to ask that all of us would stand and link up across the auditorium, and we're going to pray for God's peace. We're going to pray for God's healing over our community. We're going to pray and ask the Lord to bless the African-American community and the Jewish community, and we're going to do it by linking together. We're going to link together. My hope is, is that if you have racism in your heart, that it's this moment you will confess it to God as sin and you will ask him through Jesus to set you free. The other thing I'm going to ask for is that by faith, 
that we would pray and ask God to heal our community. There's nothing like the love of Jesus that transforms a heart and life. We have people in the Jewish community and the African-American community, their hearts need to be healed. We also have people that need to be freed up from racism. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you came into this world. When you came into this world, you elevated love to a whole new level. You're the first one ever to announce to love your enemies. Jesus, help us. God, now as we stand into your presence, we do so as a church family, and we identify that every single person is created in the image of God. And in that, we see your image in each person. Lord, now as we stand together, we stand in physical, spiritual, and emotional unity. And we pray that you would bring healing to our city. We pray very specifically for the African-American churches that are meeting this morning whose pastors have told me that they're fearful this weekend in worship. We pray that you would extend your powerful arm and your gentle hand and you would bring wholeness and healing into those congregations. Lord, we lift up to you the Jewish community of our city. We pray that you would bring healing and wholeness into that community as well. Lord, we believe for that. We also pray for anyone in our church family who has experienced racism for whatever reason. We ask in the name of Jesus that you would bring healing and that you would bring wholeness. Lord, I also ask for any of us that Racism has gotten its evil tentacles into our hearts. We now confess that to you in the name of Jesus, and we pray that we would be freed up from that sin. And it would leave us. And in the place of it, the love of Jesus would remain. God, now again, we look to tomorrow as we think about this horrific anniversary. We pray that somehow, some way, your powerful arm and your gentle hand, the presence of Jesus would be moving through our city, touching hearts and touching lives. Lord, we pray for this, and we believe for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I'm going to continue the sermon in the sermon series entitled Faith for the Real World. Faith for the Real World. I know because many of you have been telling me that this series has been very challenging, and I want to warn you, this one will be worse. (laughs) You see, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. As the writer John Mark was led by the Spirit... He, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put very specific stories and episodes in his gospel. The one that we're going to look at this morning is found in two other gospels as well. It's important. Before we get to it, I do want to say, though, oftentimes preachers don't want to deal with this story. 
because it's not one that has what we would call a happy ending, and yet it's in three Gospels. What we need to understand, though, is that we're going to meet some individuals that maybe for some of us who have never read the Bible are going to be unfamiliar to us, one of whom, though, if you stayed awake during middle school history, Roman history, this individual will be familiar to you. But what I want to say as I move towards the reading of this story is that oftentimes in the Newer Testament, there's a literary tool that was inspired by the Holy Spirit that is utilized to draw us in. And in layman's terms, it's called compare and contrast. What do I mean by that? I mean that oftentimes in the Gospels, you will see stories that are back-to-back, and those stories are there for you to compare and contrast. Things like this. Oftentimes in the Bible, we experienced this in last week's sermon. There was the story of a woman being healed by Jesus while he was dealing with a man. There's that idea that Jesus deals with men and women. Oftentimes, you'll discover that there'll be a child that's healed and then an adult. You'll notice that there are healings where it's specifically one is at night, the other one's during the day at land and at sea. Jesus deals with the rich, the poor, the Jew, the Gentile, the sinner, the righteous, the Pharisee, the tax collector. And you find that there's these compare and contrasts in the Gospels. I want to encourage you. As you read the Gospel, look for those. They're there. What they're there for is to teach us the bookends of God's love. The bookends of who God deals with and you discover it's everyone. This morning's reading is going to deal with, are you ready, the beheading of John the Baptist. What a joyful thing to talk about on a Sunday morning. Yet it's found in three Gospels. In just a few moments you're going to meet Herod. His real name is Herod Antipas. You're going to meet Herodias, his wife. You're going to meet Herodias' daughter, and you will meet John the Baptist. Let's read. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Here's what the gospel tells us. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. I want to push the pause button before we read on. If that sentence does not lure us in, it should. You would be hard-pressed to meet someone in the United States of America that if you say the name of Jesus, they'll say, I don't know anything about him. You see, the entree to this story is something that should draw us all in, especially if you've ever heard the name of Jesus. You see, King Herod, Herod Antipas, has been hearing about the name of Jesus because it had become well-known, just like in our culture. Reading on, it says, some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him, meaning Jesus. Others say he's Elijah, which is one of the Older Testament prophets, and still others claimed he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John the Baptist 
By the way, John the Baptist did not write the Gospel of John. That's a different John. But he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised from the dead. That's what he believed about Jesus. He believed that John the Baptist, whom he had killed, had been raised from the dead, and that's how you have Jesus. Let's read on. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother, brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. She was not able because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man. And when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Fascinating. Reading on, finally the opportune time came on his birthday. Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, I want you to catch something. In the original language, it says that he repeated that oath over and over and over. He said it multiple times, not just once. She went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? It's kind of like phone a friend in those game shows. Here's what her mom says. The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was greatly distressed because of his oaths and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her, so immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went and beheaded John in prison and brought his head back on a platter. That's where the phrase, your head on a platter, comes from. And he presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. And on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Compare and contrast. That's what this story is all about. It's a true story. We know this because Josephus, who is an ancient historian, writes about Herod, writes about Herodias, and writes about John the Baptist and his death. But when we think about compare and contrast, We hear a story like this. The story's really written to invite us in. What role do you play? Who do you honestly assimilate to? So compare and contrast means self-reflection. Where am I at? Who am I like? And what will I do about it? In order to get a grasp on the story, we have to know a little bit more about Herod. His name is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great 
was the one that was the great builder around Israel. And if you ever take a tour of Israel, you will see buildings that Herod the Great built. But you see, Herod Antipas was one of his three sons. When Herod the Great died, Herod the Great's kingdom was split up into three chunks and Rome gave each one of his sons some territory to govern. Now what else you've noticed in the story is that Herod had an affair with his sister-in-law and took her as his wife. What the Newer Testament does not tell us, but Josephus does, is that Herod was married to another woman and sent her packing in order to marry Herodias, his brother's wife. What's interesting is the wife that he divorced and pushed to the side, her dad was the king of the Nabataean Empire. And later on, what ends up happening is that king declares war against Herod Antipas and whoops him in battle. And many people believed at that time that that loss for Herod Antipas was God's judgment for having executed John the Baptist. Josephus tells us that as well. What's interesting to note about Herod Antipas is that he also, near the end of his reign, at the prompting of his wife, Herodias, goes into Rome and asks Caligula if he can be declared a true king. Caligula turns on him and banishes him from the empire. It's fascinating. What Josephus tells us very clearly about Herod Antipas is that he was light-minded, sensual, and vicious. But there's another thing to know about Herod, and it's found in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. It tells us the following it, near the beginning of the book of Mark, prior to where we're reading now, there's this incredible verse, and it says in Mark 3, 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It's fascinating. You see, there are some Jewish people who actually believe that Herod is supposed to be the king of all of Israel. And they believe God has put him there, and they're called Heronians. They're, uh, they are a religious political group that is backing Herod. We know that they actually hate Pharisees, but what's fascinating is their mutual hatred of Jesus actually brings them together. One other thing to take note of is Jesus mentions Herod once. And here's what Jesus says about Herod in Luke chapter 13, verse 32. He says, tell Herod the fox. He calls him a fox. The next person we meet is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a fascinating Newer, newer Testament character. We find John in all the Gospels. He was the most famous religious leader of Jesus' day. He would be known as the Billy Graham of Israel. Most of us who study scripture believe he was part of what was called the Qumran community. He was in a sea and a group of people who had left the corruption of religion in Jerusalem and had moved down by the Dead Sea and they were living a celibate ascetic life 
And at the center of their life were water baptisms, and the other thing was preserving the Word of God. That's what they were involved with. They became famous. And all of us have heard of the Essenes from the Qumran community because that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. John the Baptist, I believe, and many biblical scholars believe, was part of that community. The final thing to understand, though, biblically, is that John is the last of the Older Testament prophets. John was the last of the prophets. It explains how he's dressed at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, that he literally comes out of nowhere, and he begins to preach in the wilderness. He's that voice of the Older Testament prophet. And the book of Malachi told us it's the last book of the Older Testament. Tell us one will come and he'll prepare the way for the Lord. And that's what John the Baptist does. And as the Older Testament prophet, he points to Jesus. And in pointing to Jesus, he does something else that Older Testament prophets always did. He stuck his bony prophetic finger in the face of the king. And he called him on his incestuous adulterous affair, and he begins to rebuke him, which is why he is arrested by Herod, put in prison. What's amazing about Jesus is Jesus spoke of John. And in Matthew chapter 21, we discover that he mentions John the Baptist in a very unique context, and I want us to read this together. Here's what the Bible tells us in Matthew 21, 23. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. By the way, if you met Jesus and asked him a question, you have an 85% chance in the Newer Testament of him asking you a question back. What Jesus does, he says, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Well, the Pharisees huddle up. It says, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? Because John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Fascinating. Not only did Jesus speak of John, but John spoke of Jesus. And here's what John says about Jesus at the beginning of the gospel of Mark. I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. His most famous quote about Jesus is taken from John chapter 3, verse 30, where John the Baptist announces, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. You see, John the Baptist was the Billy Graham of his day, and he begins to recede into the background as Jesus' ministry begins to grow past his, and he did it humbly 
and willingly before the Lord. For those of you who would like to go a little bit deeper in Scripture, I would encourage you to compare Mark chapter 6 with the book of Esther. You see, in the book of Esther, we've got a king that does exactly what we find is happening here in Herod's life. You see, in both of these stories, in Mark chapter 6, as well as in the book of Esther, both kings throw a party to impress the powerful people. Both of them have rejected their first wife. Both of them have a woman come in and make a request of them. Herodias' daughter, though, gives a depraved, selfish request, whereas Esther comes in and she makes a virtuous request of the king, which is focused on others. But where the connection really happens is that both kings make an oath publicly. Herod does it to Herodias. We find that Xerxes does it to Esther. And both of them make an oath up to half of their kingdom. Whatever you want, up to half of your kingdom. You see, Herod is a wannabe. He's a person that no doubt knows the story of Esther. He loves Xerxes' power because Xerxes, it tells us, has had a 180-day party for his wealthy friends and the power brokers of his country. You see, you can almost see where Herod fancies himself similarly, but there's one dynamic difference that you have to understand, and that is Xerxes had the authority to give away half his kingdom. Herod did not. He was a puppet of the Roman Empire. He did not have the authority to give away anything. Obviously, Herodias knows this, so she asked for John's head instead. As we compare and contrast and we think about how we step into the story for ourselves, There's one phrase here that absolutely has gripped me for the past week and a half as I've been praying about and studying for this sermon. And it's Mark chapter 6, verse 20. Three words. Herod feared John. Isn't that crazy? Herod feared John. Here's why. Herod has all the wealth, all the power. He's got the position with the Roman Empire. He has connections all over the place. He's there by Roman appointment. He's part of the Herodian dynasty. He's from the right family. He's got everything that you would possibly need to be a person of power. And not only that, who's in prison? John. John the Baptist is in prison, not Herod. But what's incredible to me is it says that Herod feared John. And what's stunning is everything, everything that Herod had gone after to make his life complete, John had none of those. None of them. John had no wealth. He had no political power. He didn't hold a position even in the religious system. He was not connected to Rome. 
He was not part of the Herodian dynasty, although his dad was a priest in Jerusalem. You see, the stunning difference between the two is everything Herod does is for himself and to impress people. John the Baptist does none of those. None. And yet, who fears who? Never says John the Baptist fears Herod. But it literally says that Herod shakes in the knees when he thinks of John. It's powerful. Can you imagine the difference between their Facebook posts? Imagine Herod, 100 times a day, selfie, 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 selfie. Eating breakfast, selfie, selfie. Eating lunch, selfie, selfie. Oh, let me show you a video of the party that I'm throwing. Here's the video, here's the video. Selfie, 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 all day long. You try to find John the Baptist Facebook, and he's off the grid. Doesn't care. It's amazing. By the way, I'm not saying Facebook's a bad thing. Just be careful what you put. It's permanent. Irretractable. So was Herod's oath. It was irretractable. He repeated it multiple times. But you see, when I think about that phrase, Herod feared John, it's totally upside down, isn't it? Totally upside down. And yet when you look at it, you discover so quickly that all of us put our faith in something All of us put our faith in something. And what we discover is that Herod had put his faith in what other people think, in political power, in financial power. He had put his faith in making himself feel good and getting all of his wants and all of his desires. And what you will discover is that's where he put his faith. John the Baptist hadn't. He had put his faith in Jesus. He had put his faith in a God that had called him. And because of that, he lived a categorically different life. The greatest difference, honestly, between Herod and John the Baptist is this. We find that Herod is an insecure, selfish, fearful, wishy-washy person. Not John. John was a man who knew God. He knew Jesus. And because of that, he was secure. And he was faithful. And he was unafraid. As a matter of fact, you would remember in our reading from Mark chapter 6 that Herod liked to listen to John. Let me be blunt. John's preaching to Herod would have been Worse than mine right now. Way worse. Can you imagine going to hear him? Hey, let's get John the Baptist out of prison. I love to hear him. What do you think the first thing John the Baptist said to him every single time? Are you still with Herodias? You're a sinner. You know what he told him next? There's this guy named Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. And Herod would have none of it. None. Please know that Herod had faith. So do you. Where you put it matters deeply. We all have faith. 
It's what we put it in. Now you will also notice in the story that as we move beyond the whole idea of Herod fearing John, which is so upside down, it should have been the other way, but it simply wasn't. Because the kingdom of God doesn't operate like the kingdom of this world. And what we discover is Herodias didn't understand it either. Because she was of the false belief that if you silence the human voice that reminds you of what is right and what is wrong, if you silence the human voice that reminds her husband of the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, she thinks if you sever that voice, if you chop off its head, the voice will go away. But that's clearly not what happens. Because what we discover is, Herod says it multiple times. He looks at Jesus and says, oh no, John whom I've beheaded has been raised from the dead. It's still bothering him. It's gripping him. Even though the head has been severed, the voice has been silenced, the law of God is still true. It's still true. You can silence it, but it's still true. And the other thing that is so important is that Herod's view of Jesus was not biblically based at all. That's why we are a biblically based church. Because what we believe about Jesus is so important that we get it right. That we get it right. And he had this weird idea that really what Jesus was, was John raised from the dead. I love the honesty of Scripture, though. I love it. Because what we discover in Matthew chapter 11 is that John's faith hit a crisis. I've had a crisis of faith. I know what that feels like. Almost everyone who walks with Jesus at some point faces something. And when we face it, it feels so much bigger than our faith. It's called a crisis of faith. Sometimes what a crisis of faith does is make us align our faith biblically. Here's what I know. A lot of people sitting here believe that if I'm good, God will only bless me. It's not biblical. God will do what's best for us. That's what his blessing means. But we see it throughout Scripture. When difficult happen, things happen to faithful people, the people around them go, what did you do wrong? You must have done something wrong. That's why people believed that the Nabataean king beat Herod in battle. People were going, Herod, because you, you cut the head off of John the Baptist, that's why you lost the battle. It's not how it works in the kingdom of God. God does what is best for us. And sometimes that means tough times. But what we find is in Matthew 11, John has a struggle. And in his struggle, he dispatches two of his disciples to go meet with Jesus. He's in prison. What we read about in Mark 6 is the execution that's going to happen. But John is in prison. And in, Mark, or in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, it says, John sent two of his disciples... And they have this question that John needs the answer to. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? You imagine. 
John saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove. John baptized him. John announced him as the Son of God who came in to this world to take away its sins. But now he's in prison. His spiritual math isn't working. He's in prison. And the question again is, are you the one who has come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. And the next phrase is shocking. John, blessed is anyone who does not stumble or fall away on account of me. Why would Jesus say that? He says it because John thought that Jesus would follow in his footsteps. That the first thing Jesus would do in his ministry is go into the royal court and point his bony prophetic finger at Herod and renounce him for his adultery, but it never happens. Jesus doesn't do that. And John's sitting there in prison going, I thought Jesus would do this, that, and the other, and he's not. Jesus, please tell me. Tell me if you're truly the one. And Jesus responds with that incredible quote, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And what we know because of the Dead Sea Scrolls is this is a quote that was found about the Messiah. There's a fragment in the Dead Sea Scrolls that has that quotation on it or something very similar. In other words, Jesus was saying to John, John, I know what you wrote about me, and I want you to know that I'm him. I'm him. When we talk about faith for the real world, I think the application is obvious. It's obvious. Where do we put our faith? The symptoms of faith in the things in this world is that I'm self-centered. It's that when I have the opportunity to ask, and I want you to think about this very carefully, when you pray, what are your prayers like? Are they always stuff for you? Or like Esther, when you enter before the king, do you find yourself repentant and humbled and then making requests for others that God would bless, not forgetting yourself? But the idea here is, is where is my faith? Compare and contrast. As I thought about the life of Herod, he is living the American dream, is he not? He's got the wealth, he's got the power, he took the woman he wanted, he's done all the things that it takes to get to the top. But if you read accurately in that story, he is insecure, can't make a decision, and he fears someone that in the natural it's irrational that he would fear them. But the reason why he feared John, because John was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. Would you stand with me as we close? The worship team is going to lead us in just a moment. 
faith for the real world. This story is so real for our day. Would you take a moment to close your eyes in God's presence? To open up your heart to Him. And if something has struck a chord in your heart, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, I want to encourage you to surrender it to Jesus.